We've been in a sermon series that we've titled Seeking a Homeland. Those are the words up above me right now. Seeking a Homeland. Our goal when we started it was to study the lives of people from Scripture, both Old Testament and New, and glean some of the lessons from those that were seeking a homeland. The reference comes out of Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, people that were seeking a homeland through relationship with God. So we wanted to take these different stories and extrapolate out the things that we need to hear from each one of them. That's what we've been doing, and we're going to continue on through the rest of the summer. This morning, we're going to be looking at John the Baptist. Now, whether you grew up in church or are new to the faith and to church, the odds are that you've heard of John the Baptist. The things that people know about him are as varied as the sand on a seashore, yet most people know who he is. As I was putting things together this week, I wanted to hit some of the high points of his life, and I was just sitting at my computer and started writing. This is what came out. If we were to apply what we know about John from Scripture to today's culture, he would be at best strange and at worst outside his ever-loving mind. He was born into an average family, but a very spiritually-minded one. His parents were both from the priestly line of Levi, Because there were so many Levites in Israel during that time, they didn't stand out at all. When he was a teenager, John left the comforts of home and moved to the wilderness. He lived a homeless, almost hermit-like existence. His clothes were anything but fashionable. Matthew records it this way. John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. His diet would turn most of us off, certainly it would me. Once again, Matthew says, And his food was locust and wild honey. He had no formal education, though tradition says he surrounded himself with Old Testament scribes in the region of Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Even though he came from a priestly line, John had nothing to do with the priesthood. He wasn't connected to wealth nor royalty. He started no political or religious movements. Common people were drawn to his message, and religious leaders resented it. He rebuked those in positions of power, had a small band of disciples, baptized Jesus and others and he died young at the hands of a puppet ruler. Yet the angel Gabriel would say this of him, for he will be great before the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And Jesus would say, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John's life proves to us repeatedly that God uses the most uncommon people to accomplish extraordinary things. And when he does, he gives us the power that we need to accomplish whatever it is that he has called us to do. Did you catch in there that the Holy Spirit came to rest on John when he was still in his mother's womb? He is the first person to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and it happened in his mother's womb womb. God gave John everything that he needed to accomplish what God called him to do. It is a remarkable story, a truly remarkable story. But at the end of it, there are two lessons that every one of us needs to hear, and we'll get to those. But first, let's look at John's story. Hopefully it will inspire you. You cannot look at John the Baptist without looking at where he came from. You need to know his birth story in order to really understand who he is. And that story begins 500 years before John 
Now think about that for just a second. It begins 500 years before John. Now, let's back up just a little bit before that. The Jewish people had experienced a 400-year period of silence from God. The last time God spoke through an Old Testament prophet was during the days of Malachi. If you went to the Old Testament book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and then fast-forwarded to the first page of Matthew, you're just going to skip one page. That represents 400 years. It's known as the intertestamental period. 400 years God didn't speak. And then it had been 500 years at the, the birth of John the Baptist since the Lord had spoken through an angel. And when he did that, it was during the days of the Old Testament priest and prophet Zechariah. Boy, when the angel spoke to him, he shared some inspiring things. Let me show it to you. So if you go to Malachi, turn left one book, you'll be in the book of Zechariah. Well, we're going to read here at first. Whew, distance. It's inspiring. You'll see why. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Verse 7. Oh, this is about to get good. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. Verse 18. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I asked, or I said to the angel who talked to me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. 
Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Oh, love that. I love that. The book of Zechariah is broken into two parts. Most people believe that they are divided by his age. Verses 1 through 8, according to the majority of scholars, were written when he was very young. And the point of chapters 1 through 8 is the first coming of Christ. But then from chapters 9 through 14, most scholars would tell you those chapters were written when he was much older, much later in life, and they focus on the second coming of Christ. Now that age division is an interesting thing, but what's really stunning about this little tiny book is the way it speaks to both the first coming and the second. Go with me to chapter 14 and listen to what he says about the second coming of Christ. Verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. That's just good. That's just good. And that's the last time an angel spoke to an Old Testament prophet. 500 years. 500 years before God would open his mouth in this way again. And then it would be about the last of the Old Testament prophets. But the angel would speak to a priest. Join me in the Gospel of Luke, will you? Luke chapter 1, I'm going to show you something really cool. Now, real quick, who was the last Old Testament prophet to hear an angel speak? His name was Zechariah. You hold on to that. It is very important. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. I told you this is going to be gospel aerobic, so I hope you're ready for it. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Tiny little detail in the Bible. Tiny little detail that makes all the difference in the world. Now some of your translations of the Bible may say there was a priest named Zacharias. Zacharias is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Zechariah. It is the exact same name. This New Testament priest was named after the Old Testament priest and prophet. There is connection between them. 
Does that make sense? Shake your head yes. You're tracking with me? That is a really cool detail because watch what happens. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now let's stop there for just a second because you need to understand what's going on. Zechariah was born into a priestly lineage. That was his heritage. Both his mother and father were from the line. So it was his birthright. He grew up studying the things of Judaism. He grew up studying the priestly life. And he had served in it all of his years. That means from the time he was 18, 19 years old, he began serving around the temple. He became a teacher. Now, there were a number of people that fit in that exact same category, so he didn't rise to the top among all of them. He was counted among the multitude. And because there were so many, they had to cast lots to see which priest would do certain things at the temple. And because there were so many people from the line of Levi, usually once you were chosen to do a certain job, that was it. You would never be chosen again. It was a one-time shot. And one of the great things that they got to do was to offer incense at the altar of incense right outside of the Holy of Holies. But they would only get to do it one time in their lives. Just once. Once they did it, they were done. More than likely, if they were not the high priest, they would never set foot past the court of the Gentiles again. Maybe into the court of women, but they would stay outside where they would do their priestly duties and they would lead in a time of prayer. But just once, just once, they would be chosen to go in. For Zechariah, it took a long time. A long time. He was old, advanced in years. He'd been serving for decades and never his turn. But on this particular day, when they cast lots or they reached into the bowl to pull out a name, his name was called. Zechariah was the one that would get to go in and offer incense at the altar of incense. This was a serious job. This was a big task, one not to be taken lightly, and Zechariah didn't take it lightly. What's what happens? And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, if we don't read that the right way, we will just believe that he was scared because he saw an angel standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. So we would read that the way we read most scripture. And fear fell upon him. There's no question that that must mean because there was an angel, which would make sense because, remember, there is no record of an angel speaking for 500 years. So seeing an angel would be a bit shocking. But more than likely, it is more than that. When the Bible says that fear fell upon him, you have to remember that Zechariah is very familiar with all of the Old Testament accounts. That means he is familiar with this one from the book of Leviticus. Don't turn with me. Keep your finger right where you're at. Just listen to this, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. 
Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. I would imagine at this particular moment when Zechariah saw the angel of the Lord standing at the right-hand side of the altar of incense, he thought, what have I done? Are you kidding me? The last time that I know this happened, Nadab and Abihu died on the spot. Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire. Something was wrong with the way they did it and God struck them dead. He must be here for me because the Bible says fear fell upon him. But if you were to unveil the original languages, it carries with it this idea. He was scared to death. He was scared to death. Now certainly he was standing there face to face with an angel. Nobody had done that in 500 years. But in his mind he's running through everything that he had done leading up to this moment. What did I do? How is this unauthorized fire? Nadab and Abihu died and I'm about to die. He was scared to death. He was scared to death. And then the angel changed a little bit of that. Let's pick up verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So now Gabriel has just delivered his message and John is moving from fear to some sort of excitement. But that excitement is measured with a bit of anxiety because he knows he is not young And neither is his wife. And so here we have Zechariah about to make a mistake that I promise you if he could roll back the hands of time, he would do it. He would not say what's about to come out of his mouth. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now I'm going to stop here before we read this next sentence. And I want to remind you that it is imperative If you want to study the Bible and understand the Bible, you cannot remove emotion from what you read. You have heard me, if you've been around very long at all, you've heard me harp on this. You must read Scripture with emotion if you want to find the true depth of what you're reading. And this is one of those times. Listen to this. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Void of emotion, that is the most innocuous thing you have ever heard. Listen to it the way it should be read. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, just like that. I am Gabriel, pay attention to me. What in the world are you doing? I stand in the presence of God. How dare you question? That's what Gabriel's bringing He isn't saying, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of the Lord. He's saying, I am Gabriel. Open your eyes, boy. Open your eyes. Why would you question anything that I've said to you? This hadn't happened in 500 years. You should have been waiting right here. I am Gabriel. That's exactly what he was saying. Then he goes on to say, And behold, 
you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So not only does Gabriel say, wake up! He says, now you're not going to say a word. You will not say a word. Now here's the rub of that whole thing. Zachariah just found out he was going to be a dad. You know after all these years, he was excited to go tell somebody We live in the day and age of gender reveals on social media and dads are just as involved as their wives. Mothers are just as excited about this. People can't even wait until the birth of the child to tell people what they're going to have. This was the greatest gender reveal ever short of the reveal of Jesus coming and Zachariah couldn't say a word. He couldn't tell anybody about it. He couldn't go out and say, I'm going to have a boy. It couldn't look like that. We have a dog coming this fall, a little puppy. In first service, I said, Tina and I are expecting, but that went nowhere. So we're expecting, a, we're expecting a little puppy this fall. I've already been telling people about this puppy. I've already been bragging about what a great hunter she's going to be because I know her lineage. I know where she comes from. I'm so excited about what she's going to do, and that's a puppy. Zachariah just heard all of this, and God said, you won't speak of it. Not one word is coming out of your mouth. And not one word did. Can you imagine what it was like when God removed his hand from Zechariah's mouth? All of those thoughts that were penned up, he just spewed them. If you think I have a lot of words, (laughs) Zechariah didn't stop talking for a week. And Elizabeth was in hiding for five months. She was held back as well, not saying a word about what was going to happen. But in that time, she was receiving her own blessings, which is pretty cool in and of itself. Like this. In in Luke chapter 1, picking up in verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What an experience. Mary came to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and and they're both pregnant at the time. Mary with Jesus and Elizabeth with John. and, And the Bible had already told us, the angel had said, that the Holy Spirit would come to rest on John even when he was in his mother's womb. And there it happened. Jesus comes into the room still in Mary's womb. And John in the womb in utero leapt, leapt. The Holy Spirit came to rest on him and never left. Never left. That's what this was like. Wow. Wow. That's John the Baptist. That's the account of him before he ever took his first breath. Wow. And it sets the stage for the message that he would carry. And what a message it was. An incredible one. A powerful one. One that would drive people 
to repentance and ultimately to salvation. But a curious message. Before we can look at the message, we have to look at the location where it was preached. John was born the son of two people from the tribe of Levi. He had all the heritage necessary to be a priest. He could have served in the temple without anyone questioning it. His pulpit could have been in Jerusalem, and not just in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. John could have stayed outside and preached with power everything that he had to share, and every Jewish person that came into the temple to worship the Lord could have heard it, but John didn't preach there. Historians tell us that he never became a part of the priesthood. He chose instead in his late teenage years to leave his home in Jerusalem and go live in the wilderness. Now, I'm not talking about going out into the woods and building a little log cabin. John chose to go to a horrendous place out into the desert, into the region of the Dead Sea. It is terrible. It's hot. It's nasty. You can't find a tree to get under for shade. You have to go into caves just to try to avoid the afternoon heat and and get out of it. John said, that's where I'm going to preach. That's where I want to set up my pulpit. What? Are you kidding me? We live in northwest Montana. We would totally understand why John would say, I'm going to go to Montana. I'm going to preach there and see if people want to come. John said, I'm going to go to the most God-forsaken place on the face of the earth where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be and it's been destroyed by fire and brimstone. That's where I'm going to preach and I'm going to expect people to come. And you know what happened? People came. They left Jerusalem to go out into the desert to hear the message that John had to preach. They were so curious about this guy wearing camel's hair and a leather belt, eating locust, but preaching a message that they had never heard when he had the right to preach in the temple, but he wasn't doing it. He chose instead to preach in the desert. People were curious. They wanted to see what this was all about, and they went person after person after person after person. Family after family after family, multitude after multitude, went out to hear what John had to say. His message was really quite interesting. Let me show it to you. We're going to go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Skip down to verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That was his message. John was preaching Jesus. People were coming to hear what he had to say, and John was saying, don't pay attention to me. There's one coming after me. He's the one that really matters. You pay attention. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Savior that you have waited for, he is coming. Open your eyes and be ready to receive him. That was his message. The message was Jesus. Jesus himself would say this about John in Matthew chapter 11, verses, well, just verse 9 and 10. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. 
So we have Jesus telling us along with Mark in Mark chapter 1 that the prophecies of Isaiah and the prophecies of Malachi were fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. He's not just a prophet. He's more than that. He's a preacher. You go hear what he has to say. And people did. People did. They flocked to him. His ministry really began or gained traction after he baptized Jesus. I want you to think about that for just a second. John the Baptist was given the responsibility of baptizing Jesus. The Gospel of John records it this way in chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's standing in the water baptizing people, and Jesus walks up, and John takes a little break and says, Behold the Lamb of God! I would have loved to have been there. One of the things I'm going to ask of God when I get to heaven, and there's so many things, I just want to say, Lord, can you take me beside the Jordan River? Just roll back time, because there is no time in heaven. Roll back time and let me see that. Behold, the Lamb of God. And then the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descended on Jesus right there in front of John. That's what he saw. He already had the Holy Spirit living in him. He had that from the time he was in his mother's womb, but now he's standing in the presence of the Lord and he says, he's the one, he's the one I'm telling you about. He's the one that comes after me. Whew! That was his message. Seems really easy, doesn't it? But it was not always a popular one. If that's all John preached was take a look at Jesus, man, that'd have been a cakewalk. But that's not what he preached. He said, you've got a sin problem and Jesus is the answer to your sin problem and you need to repent of your sin problem. If you have any hope of knowing heaven, if you have any hope of standing in the presence of God, deal with your sin problem. And his main audience were Jews. That was painful because the Jews believed that their heritage was enough. They believed that they would receive eternal life because of who they were. Not because of who the Lord was, but because of who they were. They were born Jew, therefore they were good to go. So this is what John said to him, and I want you to imagine how well this went down. Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. <laughs> so he's looking at him, going, Yep, I know you think that's enough. It's not. God could bring up people like you out of stones. This isn't enough. It's not enough to say I'm Jewish by birth. It's not enough to hold on to your heritage. You need to do something about your sin problem. You have to repent of it. And from that point forward, he started to preach a message that would challenge everything about them. This is found in the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 3, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? 
And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. (laughs) Come on. Just picture how well that pill went down. He said to the tax collectors, yeah, here's what you're supposed to do. Uh Uh-huh. Gets even better. Soldiers also asked him, and and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other extortions, he preached good news to the people. And here's one of the cool things about John. He was not selective about who he preached to. In fact, he didn't care who was standing in front of him. The message was always the same. You have a sin problem, and you need to deal with your sin problem. And Jesus can deal with it, but you're going to have to repent. When you carry a message of repentance out in front of you all the time, you're going to offend some people. And he offended some people. One in particular was the puppet king, Herod. Because you see, Herod, Herod's sin problem was, was visible for everybody. Are you ready for this? Herod fell in love with his brother's wife. He divorced his wife and married her, thus making him guilty not just of adultery, but of incest. The Old Testament law speaks of both. So John, because he was John, went to Herod and called him out on it. He just went right up to the Capitol building, knocked on the front door, walked in, went up to the secretary sitting outside of Herod's office and said, I'd like to talk to the king. And because God was ahead of him, the door got opened and he went in there and said, I know you don't know me, but I got a few things to tell you. What you're doing is wrong and you better repent of it and fix what you're doing or you are in serious, serious trouble. So he told Herod that. Herod went home and told his wife that. His wife said, what are you going to do about it? Herod said, well, I wasn't really planning on doing anything about it. This kooky dude wearing camel's hair, smelling like the desert, came in and said that, left a big pile of sand on my floor. I was just going to let him go. She said, no, you're not. Arrest him. Arrest him. Because we're not going to have him walking around saying things like that. And Herod did. He arrested John. He didn't throw him into a palace prison. Tradition tells us that when he was arrested and thrown into jail... It was back out in the desert where he had chosen to minister. And it wasn't a jail like we would see it. It was a pit in the ground, the sun beating down. John was thrown down in there where he was mocked and ridiculed and laughed at and tortured, left in there for the better part of a year until eventually he would lose his head. The way that played out was this. Herod's new wife's daughter had a birthday. Herod said to her, what do you want for your birthday? Probably assuming she would say, I'd like the newest, newest model of camel that just came out. If you could give that to me. I'd like one that's kind of souped up. The coupe model would be good. It would have been a Ford. It's not what she asked for. She said, I want John the Baptist head on a platter. That's what I want. Herod didn't want to give it to her because he understood some consequences. 
But his new wife pushed hard. And Herod gave it to her. Cut John's head off. Presented it to his stepdaughter, his niece, as a birthday present. That's how John died. That's how John died. Isn't that strange? He knew the Lord before he ever took his first breath. The Holy Spirit rested on him in the womb. He had the privilege of baptizing Jesus. And that alone sets him above the crowd. And when he saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. His declarations were out there. And he preached faithfully and multitudes came to him. And he prepared the way for the Lord. And he died a martyr. His head cut off and placed on a platter as a birthday gift. Wow. So if that's his life and his ministry... What lessons do we take from that? Well, there's two really good ones. I promised you this at the beginning, and we're going to go through them fast. The first applies to everybody. So does the second. Confront your doubts. Do not just surrender to your doubts. When we hear about John the Baptist, we would believe that John never wrestled with doubt. Because just look at his whole life from the womb. He knew who the Lord was. He leaped for joy when he was in his mother's womb and the Holy Spirit rested on him. He baptized the Lord. He heard the voice of God. He knew all of those things. But when he was in that pit, when he was in that jail, when he was waiting to lose his head, doubts crept in. When things became real and and became very personal, he found himself in a place where he had to deal with doubts. This is what it sounds like. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? There had been a lot of claimers, a lot of people that claimed to be the Messiah. So that's what John's wanting to know. Tell me you're the real deal. I have to know that. Before I lose my head, make sure that you confirm to me that it isn't for naught, that this isn't pointless. Tell me you're the one. His doubts were raging. And Jesus answered answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. And Jesus would go on to say, There is none greater born of women than John. But his disciples wouldn't hear that and they wouldn't carry that message back. What they would carry back to John in prison was, yep, he's the one. And John died for him. But first he had to confront his doubts. My friends, let me say this to you again. You've heard me say it before. Doubts are not sin. I like to tell people that doubts are the stone on which your faith is sharpened. But you have to confront them, not just surrender to them. There are a number of people that are raised in the faith. They are raised in the things of God. And then all of a sudden, doubts are placed in their mind and they walk away from that faith because they surrender to their doubts. When doubts creep into your mind, you chase those doubts down. You confront them with all you have 
with everything that you have at your disposal, you confront those doubts until you get the answers. And that will become the strength that you need to remain faithful. Confront your doubts. The second message of John's life, your perspective must change. Your perspective must change. In our culture and society, this is a hard one to do because the things that John has to deal with are things that most of us would consider an insult. But John had his perspective changed, understanding that life was not about him, it was about Jesus. Listen to what he says, or what happens. John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy is mine and is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John was the most popular preacher of his time. People were flocking out into the wilderness, strange as it was to hear him preach, and they were listening to the message. John was baptizing people and he had a band of disciples following him. But after he baptized Jesus, that began to shift. And now Jesus had disciples that were following him and they were in the same region. John was baptizing in one area and Jesus was baptizing on the other. And now the line was longer behind Jesus than it was John. And his disciples said, that isn't right. Look at this. He's over there baptizing people. And John said, whoa, it is all right because it was always about him. It was always about him. He must increase, I must decrease. That is the greatest definition of discipleship you will ever hear. He must increase, I must decrease. Discipleship is this biblical word that floats around in the church and it's hard for people to grab hold of it and understand a meaning. When I define it, I say this. Discipleship is the ever-increasing visibility of Jesus in your life. That's how you know that you are a disciple. It is the ever-increasing visibility of Jesus in your life. John would just boil it down this way in verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. If you need another way of thinking about that, there is a company on the, the island of Oahu that found a great way of describing that. They have put a symbol on bumper stickers, on shirts, on hats, and they have been sent out all over the world. If you have pulled into our parking lot behind Josh and Liz Erickson's Suburban, you have seen this. If you have seen Jason Snockenberg's shirt, you have seen this. This is the symbol, and it's really good. Take a look. Now, I know some of you are looking at that thinking, gosh, am I dyslexic? Does that say hikai? What is that? Is that a backwards K? That is not the case at all. This is a symbol, and the symbol means he is greater than I. That's what John meant. He must become greater, I must become less. That's what it means. The symbol is amazing. If there are two messages from John's life for those that are seeking a homeland, they're simple. Confront your doubts and change your perspective. And then you're on the right path. 
Confront your doubts so that you never surrender them and you remain faithful all the way through. That's the goodness of God, the faithfulness that He has poured out on you. And change your perspective unto discipleship. He must become greater. I must become less. So we wrap this up. I want to share with you something I found this last week from John Piper. I have tried about 10 times to cut this out of the message. I haven't been successful. So I want to leave it with you. It is super good. I wish I was the one who wrote it. I'm not. I wish I could claim credit for it. It is that good. But I can't. Again, this is from John Piper. The worship team is going to be coming as I'm reading. Don't be distracted by that. Just listen very closely. John writes, John the Baptist is in Herod's jail cell, all alone in pain with one eye gouged out when the doubts strike. With faint music from the banquet hall in the distance, John agonizes. A story of the deep darkness of doubt that often accompanies affliction and the gift of blazing hope from the one who governs over even the most exquisite suffering. And then he writes, You know this, you fox, I stake my life. Thou shalt not take thy brother's wife. This is the word of God. Again, the words rushed to his mind and ran with shivers down his back. The eye of Herod flashed with rage. Despise your king and you will die. My name is Herod Antipas. Go dunk your hot and holy fire. I execute whom I desire. The soldiers in Herodias had smiled. Oh, that Tiberius could see my husband now, she thought. For this she lived and loved and fought. And now to see the Baptist break, to see the big mouth prophet quake. Power was her paramour, not Herod Antipas. It's your turn now, Elijah boy. Fly away to heaven in your fire, or stay and beg the pardon of your queen. Adulteress, you are unclean. The word had shot forth from his tongue. Take ashes now and sit amidst the dung behind your palace wall and cry to heaven where the God Most High stands ready in his mercy now to stay your hand and disallow that you sink in your murky sea and murder add to lechery. The soldiers readied for the cry. A saber lay against his eye. But John stood like a desert stone and loved not life or flesh or bone, but only God and righteousness. Do you not know that godlessness will bring a judgment on your head? O Herod, whether I am dead or alive, the God who made and owns your life, who rules all human thrones and makes the laws for every man, on earth has laid a holy ban on what you've done. Why should a rich and mighty prince like you go ditch your wife for Philip's Jezebel? Why do you run headlong to hell? O Herod Antipas, and yoked with Philip's heifer, <laughs> who croaked among your royal counselors, that you run after snobbish whores like the Herodias, like this Herodias. Repent, Ahab and Jezebel. God meant for kings and queens to rule their lands by righteousness. Now he demands, repent, lest you be chaff and burn, unquenched because you would not turn. Once more the words poured to his mind as John sat in the dungeon blind one eye gouged out by the tetrarch, the other useless in the dark. For seven weeks the splitting pain had ripped his fierce and holy brain. And now the lurid music from the distant hall was visceral drum made war against his soul. Oh no, he groaned, not this. The awful foal of doubt coiled round his heart again and spoke. There have been other men like you who thought they were a sign, who prayed and never touched their wine and lived in desert caves and wore their skins and set out to restore the kingdom. And they came to not like you. Elijah, have you wrought one miracle like him? 
a three-year drought, a breaker like a sea of oil, a resurrected sun, Mount Carmel. John, what have you done? Have ravens tended your desire? Where is your chariot of fire? John wept in desperation for some solid ground, a tempest roar, an earthquake, thunderstorm with fire, some sign that silence, flute and lyre, and drum all hushed, and in their place the sound of sweet and sovereign grace, a still small voice, I am the one who is to come, the very son of David and of God. And you, my friend, a burning light to do, this night a mighty deed like mine. It is the strongest cup of wine you'll ever taste. Be strong, O man of God. My Father has a plan for you. And when we have done our work, soon, like the blazing sun, your blind and bloody face will shine. Fear not, I say, you have your sign. The dungeon door swung wide, and there a soldier in the blinding glare, and with him stood Herodias. We've come to bid you dine with us, she said. But John had no desire to fight. The time for holy fire was gone. He knelt and pulled away his hair and bowed his head to pray. Such is the path that leads to life. Uncover sin and feel the knife.